A reading from the prophet Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father, as we uh, think about a story uh, from the Bible that's perhaps well-known to to some of us, or many of us even, uh, would you help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see in these pictures, this story, and what you want us to take away this morning and how we might uh, live as your prophets in this world, as persons who proclaim the greatness of Jesus. In his name we pray. Uh, Amen. So Epiphany is this season uh, in the life of the church when we celebrate, we remember, right, the manifestation of Jesus to the world. And last week, Chris looked at, at you know, at, at a part of that story, and you know, we think of those, the obscurity of these obscure wise men traveling to see Jesus and discern and behold his greatness. Or we might think about another, another passage that's often spoken of in the, in the season of Epiphany is Jesus' baptism when the Father proclaims, you know, this is my son, behold, right, my son upon whom my favor rests. Um, And as we read the story of Jesus' life, we discern over and over in his life that God is, what God is showing forth, what he's manifesting, is often quite surprising and disrupting um, uh, of the life that we want to live. And we discern more of his grace, more of his mercy. And to help us think about that uh, over the next few weeks, we are going to be reading and talking about the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a fascinating uh, book of the Bible uh, 
for a number of reasons. For one thing, it's situated and described as a prophetic book, but if you compare it to other pieces of prophecy in the Bible, it doesn't look at all like it, right? It's totally different. Um, uh, it, it, there's, there's not a lot of historical detail in, in the book of, of Jonah. There's very, there are very few names mentioned. There's a direction of place mentioned, but not the names of people generally mentioned in the book of Jonah. So it, it lacks a lot of specificity, a lot of historical detail that we're used to when we read prophetic books in the Bible. So Jonah's very strange in that regard. And not only that, you know, it, if, if you've ever read a children's storybook, right? Uh, this is the, children, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Jonah lends itself to lots of fantastic pictures, right? Giant fish, boats, storms swirling about, right? Uh, you know, seaweed and fish vomit and, you know, all kinds of things, right, that kids love to hear about and they're hanging on every word. Jonah's written with a lot, a lot, a lot of color commentary around it. So that as the audience listens to this story of Jonah, you're sort of drawn in and you want to sort of hang on to it. It's almost, it's, it's a little bit more like a graphic novel, but not a novel. So think comic strip, right? It's, it's told that way. And it's so different. And these, these features are so characteristic of the book of Jonah that some scholars actually think it's more of a parable than it is actually a historical account. Wherever you land in that debate, and I'm not going to land anywhere in that debate right now, but wherever you land in that question, here's the thing. You're going to always read the story of Jonah, and you're going to engage the story of Jonah in very similar ways, and that is this. The story of Jonah as a prophetic work is given to Israel, and then it's given now to us to be included in that so that we would use it to explore our own struggle with God, right? Our own struggle with this God who's on mission in this world, who's on a, a space. I love Matt's description of the whole of, of God's you know, godly disruption of the life that we want to live, right? And so what we discover when we encounter God, when we begin to approach God, is God is always bringing us in this place of holy disruption. Uh, and Jonah takes us into that story, uh, the story of this particular man, this prophetic man, Jonah, uh, who struggles with God and struggles with what God wants. God wants something greater than one nation under God, indivisible, right? God wants his mercy and his grace and the wholeness of his presence and justice and love and truth and goodness to flow into the whole of the earth, into the darkest recesses of the corners of the earth. That's what our God wants. So let's look at the story of of Jonah as, as we're involved in the quest of our great God. So um, three things I want to sort of focus on or highlight out of the story, the call, the run, the storm. So Jonah's call, Jonah's run, and Jonah's storm. So the call, what is it? Verses 1 and 2. The word came to Jonah, son of, son of Amittai, which means faithfulness. So already as you jump into this story, there's, there's irony and humor that's being introduced, right? Because after you've read the story once and you want to read it a second time or a third time or next year or the next year, you know that Jonah's story is not a story of faithfulness. It's a story of struggle and failure and self-pity. Uh, that's where Jonah sort of hangs out. And the book, the, you know, Jonah's faith doesn't ever really fully resolve, actually, in a sense, in this book. So you're sort of left with this story. You see, Jonah, son of faithfulness, right? 
And what is Jonah, son of faithfulness, told to do? Well, he's told to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was at the time, you know, one of Israel and the world's worst and most feared enemies, right? And and, and if you read sort of about the Assyrian nation and you read about the way they lived life and particularly what they would do with nations that they would overrun is that they were known for their torture. Um, I mean, they were profoundly violent. And so what, what God is telling, you know, you know, Jonah right here is that their wickedness is before me. So in other words, God is saying something just as simple as this. Their injustice their life of oppression, their life of, their life of inequality, their abuse of power, and you just fill in the blank of wickedness, sort of extract that word for a moment, and you fill in the blank with the practices of the Assyrian folks, the abuses of power, the injustice, and God says, I see it. It's before me. This is interestingly not so unlike Israel's own story of redemption when God says to Moses, the cry of my people has come before me. It's arisen into my presence. I hear their voices. And so it's just, it doesn't take much for us to imagine that, that you know, that when, when God says arise and go to Nineveh and warn them, it's, 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 uh, God, God hears it. He knows the oppression that's in the earth. Only it's the Ninevites, not the Israelites. It's interesting to read a text like this, I think, and really a book like this um, in this month and today on the eve of Martin Luther King Day when we call to mind what? A man and a movement that was absolutely dedicated to confronting and engaging occurrences of injustice and the abuses of racism and prejudice and inequality in our own country. So when we think about the American legacy of the American history, it's not just a history that has all these wonderful features to it. Our story is so complicated and broken. And it is littered with stories and practices of racism and prejudicial attitudes and inequalities that we just routinize and structure into the fabric of the way we live life together. Martin Luther King Jr. was a man who rose up against that because largely of his understanding of it, but his understanding of what God wanted for the life of the world. Abuses of power are profoundly paralyzing. If you've ever been in a relationship in which power is abused toward you in some way, you know that very often in that space you feel you're struck with paralysis. You don't know what to do. You don't know if you can do anything. And that's the circumstance, right? And right off, God says to Jonah, these abuses of the Assyrians, they're before me, Jonah, son of faithfulness. And even in calling him that and labeling him that, there's this, there's this sense of will you be faithful to what I see? And will you be faithful to what I love and to what I want? Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, um, and he's written widely on the prophetic tradition of Israel. And he says that the interesting thing about prophecy is that, you know, we could read it, and you could, you could sort of read it as, um, as if God is sort of scolding someone, right? It's, God is angry. He's mad, and he's going he's gonna to scold us because we're wrong, 
right? And there, there's, it's, it's easy to read prophecy that way. But he says this. He says, the prophetic tradition is not about scolding Israel or then by implication scolding us. He says, rather, it is a massive act of the imagination that tells us our world can be different. Our world can be different. Why? He says this. He says, if the present, our present lives are informed by a freighted past and an assured future. In other words, the presence of God past and present and future. God's faithful and merciful and kind activities in the life of the world out of the past and all of those stories that we know and that we hold on to, the freighted past. Because in the midst of suffering, in the midst of abuse of power, in the midst of even prosperity, if we're on the other side of that abuse of power, what, what do we do? We forget the freighted presence of God in our world. And we begin to imagine that our reality, it's my reality. It's the world that I've made around me, and maybe I'm on the, the happy side of that, and I'm, I'm with the haves and not the have-nots. Or maybe you're with the have-nots, and you're just constantly bumping into the people that, that have, the people that have power, and you feel powerless against you can't do anything to reach across the divide into a world in which you experience peace and wholeness and provision of life Brueggemann says that the prophetic task is to remind ourselves wherever you fall on that spectrum that God's imagination is for a world in which his justice thrives and fills the earth God's call to each of us is to let his imagination shape our own imagination of ourselves, the way we will live life with our relative power or our relative lack of power, the way we will live life in our world and the way we'll live life with our neighbor and the way we'll live life with persons in our world that are experiencing a reality that is so utterly different from our own. So I want you to imagine as we think about Jonah, imagine you are Jonah because guess what? You are Jonah. And God comes to you with his imagination. And guess what? God does come to you with his imagination. For your life, for your world in this moment. And the question for all of us is, how will we respond to this God who brings this word that says, I know. And I want something different. And I want to involve your life in that difference. How will you respond to that God? So second, what does Jonah do? Well, Jonah runs, right? He, he doesn't move up toward God, right? He moves down or away from God and in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He goes toward Tarshish. Uh, he wants to go anywhere but Nineveh because that seems to be a place in the world in which God's eyes are on, right? He's focused there, so I want to get away from God because Jonah doesn't want God's imagination to inform the way he will actually live his life as a person of faithfulness. He runs. And what's interesting to me here is that just practically speaking, what happens to Jonah here, right? Here's this prophetic man living inside of the life of Israel. He, he's connected to God's words, to what God wants, to what God says, to life and relationship with God. And what Jonah is very practically and functionally saying in this moment is, I don't want any of that. I don't care about your imagination, God. I don't care what you want, God. In fact, I'm divesting myself of you, God. And so Jonah's life begins to devolve away from God. And this whole picture, the rest of this chapter, is about that sort of movement away from God, not toward God. 
God's imagination for Jonah felt like death because the Assyrians were the worst enemy of Israel. So imagine yourself, there you are a prophet in the context of these faithful people, these called out people, Israel, and you're having to tell people, God wants me to go to Nineveh. How will your neighbor respond to you? Don't do it. You're crazy. It's a death wish. And so you become ostracized from your own society. Or let's say you go, what happens in Nineveh? Well, you know, I'm sure his imagination is what? These people are known for torture. They're going to take my life. Jonah says it's better to be like a faithless person than to be a person of faith. And here's the problem, is that when you look at the history of the world, which is really a story of one broken adventure after another, it's a story of injustice that is just developed and cultivated generation after generation after generation after generation after generation generation to the point that it is utterly systemic in the fabric of the way human beings relate to one another. And what Jonah says is, I'd rather live in that world, away from God's imagination. The problem with racism is that it's not a holistic, life-giving approach to being a human being. And Jonah runs away from God into spaces like that. So the third thing, storm. Jonah is uh, on the run. He gets on a boat. He's headed to Tarshish. and he's on the sea, uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a great storm comes up. But Jonah's asleep. He's fast asleep in the hold of the, in the, hold of the boat. Now, so, you know, hold in your mind, right, that comic strip way of telling the story, right? And so if you sort of think about the comic strip, what do you see next? Well, you see God, right, hurling a storm in the direction of Jonah, right? And the, the picture is that, you know, is, is of what? Is God is going after Jonah. I mean, God is in the storm. He's going after Jonah. He's getting his attention. But what is Jonah? He's just oblivious. He is utterly asleep. He is unaware of his surroundings. He's so checked out of reality that he can't even be in the midst of this pagan group of sailors. In other words, these are people that do not believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're faithless. And they're terrified because they're aware of the storm. And Jonah is obliviously asleep. So we read Psalm 139, the early part of our worship. And there the psalmist asked, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from your presence? If I go up to heaven, behold, you are there. And if I go down to the depths of Sheol, which is a way of saying, if I even die, if I go into the place where the dead, if I get as far away from life as I can possibly get, behold, you are there. It's a fascinating picture of a God that we cannot escape from. The psalmist holds that as a treasured piece of comfort, right? Because if you understand the freighted presence of this God with you in whatever circumstance or context of life that you're in, what does it do? It gives you courage, it gives you buoyance, it gives you, he enables you to sort of rise above the waves in a sense and just be at peace in the place that you're in. But Jonah seems to be trying to run as far away into the chaos, imagining that somehow the further he gets into that space, the further he is away from God. There's another bit of irony in the story because it's the pagan and unfaithful, unbelieving sailors 
who in the midst of this holy disruption of Jonah's life, the storm, it's their voice that is prophetic. What are you doing asleep? Rise up and call on your God and maybe he will save us all. So I want you to think about your life this morning for just a moment. How are you experiencing the storms of life in a metaphoric way? When you sort of look at scripture, storms are often, um, the storms, the sea, it's a, it's a metaphoric space, it's a symbolic space in which we're meant to sort of be confronted with the reality of our vulnerability in this broken world, that we are not safe. The sea was a place of danger. It wasn't, it wasn't where you went on vacation. It wasn't like, oh, the way we do, right? Let's go down the shore. Going down the shore was meant, meant that you were, you were confronted with a power that was greater than you. And if you're out on a boat in a storm, guess what? You feel your life is tossed to and fro by the waves. And you're terrified because guess what? You're not greater than that water. So you're in this storm of life. You're confronted with your own vulnerabilities. You're bouncing into realities in life that tell you life is not as it ought to be. Are you awake or are you asleep? Are you sort of obliviously checking out and just avoiding the pain of this life? Or are you awake to the reality of this pain in this life? And is God in some way helping you to see that he's with you in that storm? He is present to you in your suffering. He is present to you in your questions. He's present to you in your places of doubt. He's present to you in all of the places of uncertainty and vulnerabilities that you feel about your life story. That's the picture here. And Jonah is oblivious to it all. But there are the prophetic words of those sailors. Call on your God. So when you feel vulnerable like that, what do you do? Who do you call on? you cry out to God or do you just check out further? Do you escape in some way? Sometimes the things that are hardest for us in life are the very places that God is trying to get attention so that we will begin to discern that he's with us. Let me finish up this way. So our gospel reading this morning was from Matthew chapter 12. And that's a place in Matthew's gospel where the folks around him, and most notably the leaders of Israel around him, the faithful, right, the people that study scripture and know scripture, right, they are confronted with the life of Jesus, and it is so confusing to them. They just can't make sense of this guy who is living life at the margins, who's healing the sick, who's getting near sinners, and so on and so forth. And they want to know, you know, can, can you give us a sign of your authority? How do I know you're the real deal? How do I know that I can trust what you're revealing about God's mercy and his grace? How can I know? And Jesus takes them to this, uh, to, to Jonah. He says, I'll give you a sign. It's Jonah. Now, think about the oddness of this, right? Because as you read the story of Jonah, well, it's the story of Jonah the unfaithful. And Jesus says, Jonah's your sign. This, this comical prophet who, uh, who, who, who thinks he can outrun God, who, uh, who runs from God, who falls asleep in the boat, in, in the hold of a boat in the middle of a storm. Does that remind you of anybody, by the way, in the New Testament? Think about Jonah. Ends up in the belly of a fish, gets vomited out, has a kind of new birth, new creation into life. 
He reluctantly preaches to people that he really hopes won't listen to the message that he's preaching because he'd really rather be not a successful prophet, right? Who A pre preacher, right? Who people say, yes, I believe these things from God. Well, the people believe these things from God. As we read the story, we'll get further into that. And then Jonah feels really sorry for himself because he says, I, I knew it. You are a God of mercy and kindness. I knew it. And I'm doggone mad about it. I mean, that's Jonah. Jesus says, if you want a sign, I want you to think about Jonah. My life will be in the belly of the earth. And I will rise up. And the Ninevites who repented will be a sign against you because they believed the word that came to them that life could be different because of the presence of God. That's your sign. Jesus is on a boat in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are so terrified. And they look over at Jesus. I can imagine being on that boat, right? Can you? And you look over at Jesus and you're thinking, what, what, what is going on with this picture? Like, how can you sleep? Are you just checked out? Because usually when we're asleep, we are checked out. And Jesus rises and he speaks to the storm and to the wind and the waves and the Sea of Galilee becomes like glass and still. You see, Jesus' sleep wasn't a sleep of avoidance. He could sleep because he knew the freighted presence of God in his life, his faithfulness. And he could sleep because he knew that whatever this storm meant for him or for the disciples, that it was in no way a disruption of the dream of God that his peace would come to the earth. And he wakes up and he stills and he quietens the storm. And the disciples begin to get, they're revealed, they see something of the greatness of God in their presence showing forth. So I was in L.A. this last week uh, teaching with a program with Western Seminary, our denomination seminary. I teach a church planning class, an urban church planning class. Um, you, know, you, you plant a church in a city and you get tagged for those kinds of things, I think. So, so I was tagged for it, and there I was in uh, Los Angeles. And I, I wasn't in the beautiful parts of Los Angeles. I was in Paramount, Compton, Watts, Long Beach. And um, so these are spaces in, in uh, L.A. that are known for gang activity and gang, gang uh, problems. And so most of the church planners that I met up with that, this last week uh, and took my students to meet, actually, they were, um, they were ministering to the gangs. Uh, and in some cases, they'd, they'd come into churches that, that uh, you know, one of the guys had come into a church that had previously existed and was seeking to replant itself. But the neighborhood had changed from the days that planted that original church. And, and, um, and he had learned that his role had to be that of a parish pastor, and which meant that instead of sort of, sort of thinking about church as what we do in a building when we're together on Sundays, right, instead of sort of thinking about it in this space, he started thinking about church as what you do out there in the neighborhood when you're meeting neighbors and you're connecting with neighbors. And so he, um, he's, uh, he's walking down the street one day and he, hear, he hears coming out of uh, a liquor store 
uh, some Christian rap music. Now, those things seem incongruent, right, in some ways. And he, was, he thought it was incongruent. He's like, what's going on? So he goes into the liquor store. He says, hey, do you know what you're playing? He said, yeah, it's Christian rap. And, uh, and he, says, well, he, says, he says, well, I'm a pastor. And he says, oh, I've been praying for a pastor. And uh, he says, I, I've been praying because I've been, I've been telling the story of Jesus to these gang members that come in here to buy liquor. And, and um, I've been praying that a pastor would come and do something with them. And maybe you're that guy, you know? And so he, he says, well, maybe I am that guy. And so he's there, he starts having this Bible study in his, in his house. And this is going on week after week after week. And, and, he, um, and then one day he's out walking the neighborhood because that's what a parish priest does, right? You're in the neighborhood. You're among the people, right? And so he's walking the neighborhood, and he's meeting people, and he says, hey, I've got this Bible study. It's happening, you know, at such and such time. Yeah, it's, it's just about to happen. You want to join us? And he comes up upon this, this gang member, and he tells it to the gang member, and the gang member says, oh, yeah, no, I, I haven't got any time for that because I know what you Christians are all like. You know, you guys do love drive-bys. Love drive-bys. You drop into the neighborhood and you say a few love words and then you're out of here. And they was with another, another gang member that was a part of the Bible study. He said, no man, you don't understand. This homie lives here. That's his house. Right there. And so the gang member goes to the house to the Bible study. Jesus is the word made flesh and he dwelt among us he moved into the neighborhood folks that's the story of who Jesus is and that's the story of what he's calling the church to be now that we are people that live in and inhabit our neighborhoods and we inhabit our vocations and we inhabit all of those spaces that we get to have relationships in and we do so as a place that his mercy might flow through us into those places, whatever they are. And that we even find ourselves sometimes, right, looking into our world outside of our neighborhood because often our neighborhoods get carved up into these sort of bubble-like spaces. Everything's so fine. And we're oblivious to the injustices that other people are experiencing. And God calls us even there to hold out an imagination that life in our world can be different because of what God has done in Jesus and where he's taking the world in Jesus. And that's his call for us at Epiphany as we think and with and we sit with this story of Jonah over the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we reflect on this man's run from God. May we see how we run from you. And as we reflect on your faithfulness to run toward Jonah, may we see how you faithfully still run toward us. And you do, in a very godly and beautiful way, disrupt our taken-for-granted reality so that we become persons who have hope. And so in our present, we live differently. We live in the likeness of Jesus, revealing him and his dream and his imagination for our world. Meet us, we ask. In his name, amen.